Do you want to know more about how you can eat for better health and longevity and how to advise patients based on sound evidence so they can reduce the burden of chronic disease through diet and lifestyle? Then you're in the right place. We aim to bring you all the latest evidence on how a plant-based diet can improve your health, the health of your patients and our planet, not to mention the animals we share it with. I'm Claire Day. And I'm Daisy Lund. We are both plant-based doctors with a passion for improving nutritional education. We're so excited to be presenting this podcast where we will be interviewing experts in the field, reviewing evidence, sharing our journeys and recipes to help you on your own journey to eating more plants. So welcome to In A Nutshell, the Plant-Based Health Professionals podcast. Hi Daisy, how are you? Hi Claire, I'm really good thanks. How are you this week? Good. Um, now the one thing that I'm going to put right at the beginning of the episode because I don't want to forget it is that we wanted to give a shout out to PBHP UK for their participation in some policy with the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, which represents lots of health organisations, including the British Medical Association, Royal College of GPs, Royal College of Nursing, lots of other organisations there. And PBHP UK is a member. And so we had um, Dr. LJ Smith, who's been a guest on the podcast, and of course, founder Dr. Shereen Kassam, supported by Kate Strong, um, who's done a fantastic job of promoting climate change by cycling all the way around the UK on a bamboo bicycle. And um, they were there representing our, our views and hopefully lots of others' views on climate change and what we need to do in terms of the food system. Yeah, it's so exciting to actually see plant-based health professionals mentioned on a policy paper. So it's Biodiversity, Climate Change and Health, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well. But yeah, great, great job. Yeah, yeah, really exciting. Really great week of feedback though, haven't we? Yeah, oh, the the feedback, yes. Um, We've had... um, We've had feedback that that people do miss it when we don't talk about our recipes. And um, when we did the fish episode, there was no recipe discussion. So that needs to come back quickly and it will be back in today's episode. Yeah, that made me laugh, actually. I'm really sorry to to whoever missed our recipes at the end of the last episode. So we will definitely won't miss it next time, we promise. We'd really appreciate any comments, suggestions, feedback um, from listeners And just a reminder of how to contact us, we do have an email account, so please email us. We're in a nutshell podcast at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram and you can find us at in a nutshell podcast UK. So yes, please do write to us and let us know what you think of the podcast and what you'd like us to include for future episodes. We'd love to hear from everyone, don't we, Claire? We do. And I was just thinking about trying to generate a bit of uh, a bit of demand for the microalgae supplements that we talked about, because obviously if we generate the demand, the price will hopefully come down. And uh, I went into my local health food shop today and um, asked about them because they had cod liver omega-3s and they had a uh, flaxseed extract, which of course doesn't help us with the EPA and DHA. But she said that that hadn't been sort of pushed on them by their um, suppliers yet. Okay, so you didn't find the algae omegas at your health food shops? No, I did not. No. Oh, that's interesting. Ah. 
can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in this week's episode with Gemma? Yes, of course. So this week we've got Dr. Gemma Newman, who is a GP and an advocate for plant-based health. She's one of the ambassadors, actually, for Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. And she's well known on social media as the plant-powered doctor. And it was really, really great to have her on, wasn't it, Claire? We had a really interesting discussion. Yeah, we had a really motivating discussion. And, you know, even sort of looking back on my week and when you're trying to change your own behavior as a, a GP consulting, when when you know what you should be doing, you know that you're not supposed to be giving advice. You're supposed to be getting the, the ideas and the motivation and the solutions to come from the patient. It was a really good chance to reflect on how I do that. And um, I don't think I got it right through the week, but we can <laughs> we can only get better. Yeah, because listeners, the whole um, interview was about uh, how to help people change and and it was about behavior change wasn't it and um, I think it's sort of motivated me actually to do a a coaching and mentoring course which I'm going to be doing in a few weeks time because I just find the whole psychology of behavior change fascinating so it was a really interesting discussion and I hope listeners will also find it interesting. Yeah great so shall we get on and listen to it then? Hello everyone This week, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Gemma Newman, the Plant Power Doctor, who is a PBHP UK ambassador, lifestyle medicine practitioner, author, and very much an NHS GP. It's really great to have you on the podcast, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, both of you. I'm delighted to be here. Welcome, Gemma. Thank you. Well, we're just going to say by way of introduction that a lot of our listeners know you and probably already follow you on social media. But for those that haven't met you, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and how you came to be plant-based? I can. So as you've said, I'm a GP and I've been a doctor now for nearly 20 years. In fact, yes, this summer it will be 20 years. Uh, And it's been a journey. Um, I think a lot of people say they go into medicine because they want to help people. And, And I know that sounds really corny, but I think generally speaking that is the motivation for most doctors and it certainly was for me Uh, I loved the idea of being able to connect with people and help them through their challenges and hopefully help them to heal so that was my big why early on and I loved sort of being a doctor and early years of uh, hospital medicine were challenging and I began myself to feel quite run down Um, I was exhausted by late nights and night shifts and eating a lot of whatever was passing by, pizza, the junk food in the doctor's mess, anything that would keep me going. And over over the years, I just felt more and more sluggish and unwell. And I realized that if I was going to be a doctor for the rest of my life, I needed to get myself in a place where I had the energy to do it. And also that I didn't feel like I was being hypocritical, telling patients how to improve their lives without really making much of an effort on my own life. So that's when I started to look into ways that I could um, improve my own health through things like diet and exercise. But back then, I hadn't put a, a lot of time and effort into looking at epidemiological data or um, the ways in which nutrition played a role. I just got my information mostly from the popular press, um, as well as, you know, we did learn some things in medical school about nutrition, but that was more to do with certainly in my experience, avoiding deficiencies and rather than getting more vitality. So I sort of imbibed the whole low-carb 
approach for a little while, had a lot of chicken and fish and salads and did a lot of exercise and I did feel better. You know, my energy levels went up and I was able to go down some dress sizes and I was feeling fantastic. Um, and but but back then, of course, I thought, well, I'm in the prime of my life. I'll I'll get some blood tests. I'll I'll check and make sure everything is good. And to my dismay, I had very raised cholesterol levels. And I thought, this is this is crazy. You know, I'm in my twenties. Um, but then I remembered that my grandfather died of a heart attack when he was quite young. And sadly, this hadn't happened at that point. But my father also died of a heart attack in his 50s. It's one of those things. I think every family has stories of heartbreak of one type or another, don't they? You know, especially when we think about the most common causes of death nowadays, heart disease and cancer. Um, so I realized, you know, that 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 this was my fate. This is what I thought. I, I can't change it. I'm the healthiest I'll ever be. I just have to, you know, accept that that's what's my risk factors and move on. And then fast forward a few more years and uh, my husband was doing the London Marathon and he was getting inflamed and injured. And he decided that he would try a plant-based diet because he'd read books by ultra marathon runners and that's what they were doing. And he thought maybe that would give me an advantage. And I was quite skeptical at the time. I thought that's not going to make much of a difference. Uh, but you know, I watched along and sure enough, it really did seem to help him. He was able to improve his marathon running times. He was able to have the energy to look after the kids after a morning run. And he was able to massively improve his marathon running distance times uh, between the first and second London marathon that he ran. He improved his running times by an hour and 10 minutes, which for me was just shocking and so I thought well maybe I could look into this and I wasn't such an athlete myself I have actually run the London Marathon myself but I, I wouldn't really call myself an athlete you know uh, for me it was more about well how could it help my patients does this translate to causes of disease and the more I read the more excited I became because I realized that it really could make a fair difference and also I'd read a bit about some of the environmental impacts of the foods that we eat and I hadn't quite tipped over into action at that point. Uh, I think, you know, especially when I read all the environmental research, I think sometimes it's really hard to push yourself into thinking I can make a difference. But I think my husband's experience certainly tilted me in that direction. So I decided I'd try and eat plant-based for a month and I felt good on it. I didn't feel that I wasn't well before, so I didn't notice a massive improvement in my general well-being. Uh, but I felt good nonetheless. and amazingly I checked my blood tests and I was able to finally have uh, cholesterol LDL HDL everything in the normal range which I hadn't had before and and this is you know over a decade before I uh, since I'd last tested sorry I had tested in between but the first time I tested and the time I tested after a month of plant-based that was the only time I was able to actually get in the normal range I stopped getting pains in my legs and my knees when I ran and I, I realized, well, you know, the data is there. Now the personal experience is there. I just need to pluck up the courage to begin these conversations in my practice. And of course, that's when the true magic happened because once I felt confident, not only based on the literature, but also based on my own personal experience, I felt that those two things were quite key in me feeling the confidence to come forward and say to my patients that it could potentially help them as well.
so when was that that you actually started talking to patients about it and did you did you feel comfortable did you feel backed up by the NHS on what you were saying at that point so I began to talk to my patients about all this probably 2017 thereabouts and the issue of being backed up is interesting because of course there are other doctors other healthcare professionals that don't talk about nutrition and there are other doctors and healthcare professionals that talk about nutrition in an entirely different way to the way you would talk about it when you're um, mentioning the power of a plant-based diet. Fortunately, as a senior partner at my own GP surgery, I didn't face a huge amount of resistance. Uh, I have a lovely um, intimate practice and a very understanding GP partner. We get on very well and she's very receptive and open to understanding the data and where where that comes from. And thankfully, since that time, we also have many professional bodies and organizations endorsing uh, the research that we have at hand to prioritize a plant-predominant diet. So it's not something that you would consider to be abnormal, really. You know, we've got um, the BDA talking about the One Blue Dot campaign for sustainable diets. We've got the Royal College of GPs with their Green Impact Scheme, where they specifically mention the power of a plant-based diet and suggesting that staff and patients could potentially um, adopt a plant-based diet for sustainability. We've got the new guidelines out for Irish GPs now on sustainable diets. Uh, and of course, we've got professional guidelines, uh, things like the American College of Clinical Endocrinologists talking about plant-rich diets for diabetes prevention, and the American Cardiology Guidelines talking about plant-based and Mediterranean diets for heart disease prevention. Uh, so, oh, and of course, the World Cancer Research Fund, how could I forget, talking about fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes being the cornerstone of a cancer-preventing diet. So, you know, when you can put all of this evidence together, it should give practitioners, I hope, a lot more confidence in understanding that they come from a strong position and they should be backed up by colleagues in that as well. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Gemma, because that's exactly what I was just going to say for practitioners who perhaps aren't confident yet or don't know where to look for the evidence. You've just listed quite a lot of the organisations that they can look at. And obviously with Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, we have um, quite a lot of fact sheets and, and, and online resources for clinicians to look at. Yeah. Um, and certainly, like you mentioned, and I think Shireen mentioned on a previous podcast, that we're not actually saying anything controversial here we all know fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains. This is all the basis of a very healthy diet. Yeah, exactly. And I think once you're able to put it in those terms to colleagues, it can feel a lot less controversial and it can feel a lot more accepted. And that's a really important thing because you don't you don't want to be in a position where colleagues are doubting your um, abilities to be able to give advice or your, the, the knowledge that you're sharing. So having that backup in terms of professional organisations and, of course, in terms of planetary health and that's importance is, is, uh, is wonderful. It's really exciting times. And in, in terms of your consultations, can you tell us a little bit about um, some patients or some examples of what's been going well in general practice? What sort of things you've, you know, effective change, I suppose, with, with your patients? Yeah, I think. I aim to look at lifestyle in some way with almost every consultation. Uh, we have time constraints, as I'm sure people will be aware, 10-minute uh, appointment slots. Interestingly, 
uh, LMCs are, are pushing for us to be able to have 15 minute appointment slots, which you know I hope is something that we can push for at some point in the future. But for now, it's still 10 minutes. And what I tend to do is I listen first, um, find out obviously why they're here, uh, but also what they feel capable of doing. Um, it's when you're so enthusiastic and you learn about all these benefits, it could be so easy to just say, oh, wow, did you know this is going to be amazing and you should so do this and it's going to help everything. And your patient is looking at you like a rabbit caught in the headlights and mm. it doesn't go well. <laughs> so over the years, I've learned a lot more in terms of how to approach these topics. And it's been wonderful. You know, I've had patients uh, improve their blood pressure massively, um, reversing type 2 diabetes. I've had patients improving things like asthma, period pains, uh, things like um, uh, menopausal, perimenopausal symptoms. And uh, it's been really encouraging. Skin health issues have also been um, changed for the better. And sometimes as well, mental health issues have also been improved uh, by dietary and other lifestyle factors as well. Uh, so it's it's just wonderful to be able to see uh, in real time these changes because quite often as a GP you're you like you sort of you like to save lives in slow motion I suppose you know you're not necessarily seeing a dramatic shift from on death's door to keeping them alive and being able to discharge them from hospital uh, in a completely different state to when they came in you know you're going to be seeing them very slowly improving parameters over time and how their life is unfolding, which is quite different. But when it comes to things like plant-based nutrition, if they're open to it, blood pressure improvements can happen within a week or two. Uh, it's that dramatic. So uh, clearly I'd advise if anybody is looking at dietary measures to improve these parameters, it's important to keep an eye on blood pressure and medication and to discuss that with your doctor. Um, same as with diabetes type 2. Uh, some of the massive improvements in insulin sensitivity can actually cause you to experience a hyperglycemic episode unless you are very careful at understanding where you are with your medications and where they might be able to be reduced. Uh, so these changes, I mean, it's really wonderful how quickly they can happen. Mm, that's brilliant. And I heard you speaking recently, actually, at the VegMed conference in London, which was um, was fantastic to hear you talk. I really felt really inspired, actually, by your talk, predominantly about how to motivate people not just in general practice but this could apply to any any consultation really can't it and you used a, a sort of techniques and techniques that uh, you called blend it which sort of stuck with me can you tell listeners who weren't fortunate enough to be at VegMed a little bit about your technique I can and I'm so glad you remembered it <laughs> oh it stuck out it was one of the highlights of my day down <laughs> oh I'm glad to hear it yes so you know in order to really boost confidence in talking about these things, blend it is what, what I, I sort of tell colleagues to remember. Blend it stands for believe, listen, evoke, no bossing, desire, information, and timed. And uh, I can share what they mean each in turn so you can understand a little bit more about that. So so first of all, B for in blend it is for believe. So this is a foundational principle that I think is really crucial when it comes to behavior change in a consultation. And when you're trying to change behaviors in anyone, maybe your children or a spouse or um, somebody that you're friends with, is the idea that you have to believe that they are capable of change. You have to actually believe in them as a person, which 
I think if you have certain unconscious biases that you might not be aware of or uh, you make a snap judgment about somebody or you judge them based on lots of previous experiences, it means that sometimes you could be quite closed off to their ability to making changes. But yeah, but I think it's really important to actually be mindful of that and say, no, I'm going to remain open-minded and I'm going to believe in their ability to make a change if if they want to. So that's the first step. But the other thing you have to believe in is that the intervention actually works. <laughs> There's no point sort of suggesting something in a very lackluster fashion and just saying, oh, well, you know, you could try this if you want and giving them a shrug. Uh, they're not going to necessarily feel the most motivated if they don't think that you believe in what you're suggesting. So I think those are the two things that are particularly important. Um, and also they're both components of a good therapeutic relationship. You know, just even in that first 10 seconds of an interaction with a patient and they sit down, you know, you're, you're sort of infusing that interaction with like a meaning response. You know, you're, you're sharing with them that you believe in them and that, uh, you know, you've got good things that you can share. And that helps them to feel far more confidence in what they can achieve as well. The belief that you have actually is quite strong based on your own personal experiences and your husband's experience with plant-based diet. So, I mean, I think certainly for me, that's the case as well. I've had a lot of health benefits eating this way. And yes, I, re I read the literature. I've done the course at the University of Winchester and I have the knowledge. But actually, I really have that conviction based on my own personal experiences. I think it's human nature. The issue that we sometimes have is that um, people who are sceptical or haven't seen the benefits firsthand will, you know, maybe give you an unhelpful label like an evangelist or a zealot. Um, but I think it's actually really helpful to have tried to do it yourself first. It's, it's not essential. Uh, I certainly wouldn't say that, that uh, you had to live a more plant-based lifestyle to be able to suggest it. But it, it helps because then you know what the barriers are, you know what the benefits are, and you know you can help them in a more specific way. So so yeah, so B in blended is believe. And then we come to the next one, which is L, uh, listen. Although I like to say look and listen as well, because especially when you're in a face-to-face -face consultation, as you know, there are so many cues that you can pick up on. So we talked about how sometimes what we see and what we've experienced can shut us off to behavior change. Well, the same is true in reverse. I think what we see and what we can experience with our patients face-to-face -face may also help us to help them. So for example, making eye contact with them as soon as they come in, before you start typing on the computer, taking the time to actually listen to their concerns before you speak, uh, giving them that first one or two minutes of the consultation to just explain exactly why they're here. Um, I think that's extremely powerful. Again, talking about that meaning response, um, but it's also a way for them to know that you've actually heard their concerns. Again, that makes them more open to a therapeutic relationship. Also other cues, you know, things like, what are they wearing? What's their demeanor? Um, how do they speak? Uh, how do they smell? This is all useful information, which will help to guide you on where you think that they might be struggling. And I think sometimes it helps as well, especially when, when it comes to behavior change, quite often the patients will have the answers within themselves already. So normally, you know, when you go to a doctor, you sort of think, well, they're going to have the answers and they're going to fix me, or at least that's perhaps more of a, 
um, the traditional model of care. But when it comes to behavior change, you know, all of those answers are already within the patient, but you just have to find them. You have to, you have to seek them out. So that's why I think looking and listening is a particularly important part of that process. Um, and it's quite easy to forget when you're stressed, when you've had a busy day, when you've got lots of patients waiting, uh, you've got lots of kind of time pressures on you. And reflective listening is particularly important. So it's not just about repeating back what they've said to you. That's helpful because it shows that you were listening and that they know that you were listening. But it's also helpful to sort of infer some meaning from what they've said. So, for example, if they tell you about that they've been feeling tired all the time and then they mention that they've not had the energy to, to, have, to, to make dinner, for example then, you know, you could say something like, okay, so you've been too exhausted to cook. Uh, and then it sort of is a way for them to elaborate on some of the struggles they have and in a very specific way, which is going to be helpful for you when you're going to be coming up with a plan with them to actually change some of their behaviors day to day. So, so yeah, that's the look and listen component. And, you know, it's quite helpful because studies do show that not only do they feel heard and understood, which is a vital part of human connection, but you end up spending less time with them than you would have done had you jumped in with your own agenda straight away mm. and with your own suggestions straight away. And also, studies also show that not only do you spend less time trying to get to the bottom of what the problems are, but that there's a perception from the patient that you've actually spent even more time with them. So it has that double effect of being more efficient with the time that you've spent, but also having... Um, the perception by them that you've spent more time than you actually have. That's really interesting. So it's worth investing those first few minutes, as you say, to really get to know what's going on with that person, isn't it, before you start to move on to actions? Because <laughs> I think that's what we do in sort of the quick consultations. We try to get to the point, but actually we're missing the key bits at the beginning. Yeah, I think so. Um, so it's a good rule of thumb to to look at. And and then, so what do we have next in the BlendIt acronym? We have E, which stands for evoke. And what I mean by evoke is that part of behavior change, which is really helpful, is when you can engage your patient's memory and their imagination. And so another useful step in deciding how to change a behavior is to help them remember when they've succeeded in the past you know, it could be any kind of scenario, whether it's um, improvements in pain, improvements in blood pressure, improvements in blood sugars, whatever they've done in the past, which may have led to improvements to discuss that with them. So they have some recollection, some active memory of, of when they've been able to achieve, which will hopefully boost their self-confidence a bit when it comes to doing something in, in the future. And the other thing is, is, is to really engage their imagination about what could be possible. Because on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not easy to imagine things feeling better than they do now. And I think if that's possible, if that's appropriate for the scenario, um, questions that begin with things like, how will it feel when dot, 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 you know, what are you looking forward to when dot, dot, dot. And they may not have even thought about it. But if you're planting that idea in their mind that there is actually something that they could be doing this for, uh, which would hopefully help them to stick with it, then then that's really helpful as well. 
That's really fascinating. And I think, you know, obviously we're talking about this in the context of the consultation and dietary interventions, but actually you could apply this to anything, couldn't you? Yes. You know, what could be better for them, isn't it? What they could see their future looking like. Yes, well, exactly. And they may not have thought about it before. Uh, And sometimes it's hard to open your mind to the possibilities. And interestingly, it could also be a way of screening for things like depression, because often when someone is depressed, then they're not really able to see or imagine things feeling better than they currently do so again it would be a useful tool to understand where they are in terms of their mental health as well so that's e for evoke and then n stands for no bossing uh this is something probably all doctors will struggle with i think you know we have a powerful desire to fix things and to prevent harm don't we we want to say listen to me i know what you should do but i think you know, it's 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 a natural response, especially if you've done all this studying. You know, we've studied for years on end and, you know, we feel as though we have good things to, that we can suggest to people. So it's only natural to want to share them, but we can't boss our patients around. And um, I think I said this in my talk, one of the most useful things that I've ever been told, the advice that stuck with me for a lifetime was to take my ego out of the consultation room Um And that means to completely let go of the desired outcome. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't care about your patient or wanting them to make changes, but really it allows them the space to make that choice. And um, the other thing is when we boss someone around, there's a natural instinct to resist suggestion. And so, you know, when it comes to things like behavior change, there's two parts of the brain at war with each other if a patient's doing something that they know to be unhealthy like drinking too much alcohol or something you know generally they would know already that that wouldn't be good for them so there's you know there's there's two parts there's the part that recognizes the harm and then there's a part that resists change to the status quo because the status quo is generally safe uh, and you don't have to do anything uh, and the part that recognizes harm feels less safe because it requires an action. And so when you verbalize one half of that internal dilemma by telling them they really should cut down on the alcohol or they really should stop having so much processed food or they really should stop having so much sugar or they really should stop using salt or whatever it is that they are struggling with, um, then you kind of psychologically force them to reach for the other half of that dilemma and speak it. So with the example of saying something like, well, you know, you know, type two diabetes has been shown in many studies to be easily reversible using a whole food plant-based diet. So all you need to do is cut out meat, cut out dairy, cut out junk food and eat more nuts, seeds and vegetables. And they will say, oh, well, yes, that might be true, doctor, but you know, that's just rabbit food. And I know that my family's never going to eat that stuff. And to be honest, I don't really think I'm going to be able to do it either. So you are immediately putting them on the defensive in a way because they are forced to verbalize that part of their brain that notices all the challenges. And so the other difficulty there is that we tend to believe what we hear ourselves say. So when you are forcing your patient to verbalize one part of that internal dilemma, that you are potentially consolidating that behavior because they hear themselves say the challenges, they believe what they hear themselves say, and then that further entrenches their current behavior. So that's why it's it's not a good idea. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, nobody wants to be told what to do, do they? I know, I know. 
So to avoid, you know, being in the wrong role and taking all the good lines, the best thing you can do in this situation is to be mindful of letting go of the outcome and instead getting really curious. So uh, you could ask questions that will allow the patient to vocalize arguments for change asking questions that will allow them to vocalize why it's important that they change. So for example, if you're talking about the alcohol scenario that we just mentioned, you could ask them questions about, so you could say open question, tell me about your drinking habits. And then they may start to open up a bit and say, oh, well, you know, I'll have two or three units. or I'll have a couple of beers. I don't know, whatever they'd say. I'll have three beers after work. Uh, it helps me unwind and relax. And, you know, I really enjoy that. That's the best part of my day. And you sort of work it out in your head and you see their deranged liver function tests and you think, hmm, they need to cut down based on what they've said. And maybe they've not told me everything because they smell a little bit of alcohol and, you know, they've got this ruddy complexion. You know, you're sort of putting all of the clues together and thinking this isn't quite right. But to resist the bossing is good. And instead, maybe asking questions like, well, what do you think about drinking that much? Just ask them honestly, what do you think about drinking that much? And then they might say, well, I've never really thought about it. You know, it's fine. It's what I'm used to. It's just how I live. And uh, well, maybe now you come to mention it, I do feel a bit groggy in the mornings. Maybe they'll sort of uh, give you a little nugget to work with. And then you can ask the golden question, which is, what have you noticed? And that will allow them to open up a bit more about looking for things that may have gone wrong in their health because of their drinking habits. Things that were niggling thoughts that they pushed to the back of their mind, you have allowed them the space to bring to the forefront, which is a powerful thing to do because then they might actually say, oh, well, you know, oh, I've noticed that I get quite anxious actually the morning after I've drunk. And uh, sometimes I can snap at the kids more when I've had extra drinks in the evening and or, or whatever it is. I don't know, whatever the person is, is noticed. And then that's that's a very helpful sort of tool that you can use to then encourage them to make some changes. So, yes. So N is no bossing. And those are the two questions I actually wrote down at the, at the end of your talk or during your talk on the weekend. I wrote down exactly those two and I'm going to start using them because I think that's really powerful, not just in the consultation, but. For, for lots of discussions with people, really. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's one of those little nuggets that has helped me a lot over the years. Um, and then D in blend it, that stands for desire. So now that you've been able to let them open up about the things that they've noticed, one of the beautiful things that you can do is help them to build that desire further. And it's a way of reflecting and reinforcing their change talk. So Once they've vocalized that they were feeling groggy, that they were feeling irritable, that they were feeling anxious, that they have come to you and they've got deranged liver function tests, you can actually summarize those things for them. And there's no way for their brain to argue with it because they've already said it. And it's a nice way of presenting them with a gift, actually, because it's quite hard for us to keep track of our words and our ideas and our thoughts. Uh, And so when the patient presents you with a meadow of information, you take the moment there to then pick out the best flowers in what they've said and hand it back to them in a verbal bouquet. So you can say all of the things that they've just vocalized as reasons for change. And it will hit them in a way that perhaps it wouldn't have done before that because they've never really pieced it together in that way. And when you do that, 
it's also important to do it in a way that shows your compassion for them and their journey. So if you can, if it's possible, if you know them well enough, sometimes you don't, sometimes they're a brand new person to you. But if you do know them, it's also helpful to actually reflect on things that you like about them to compliment them on as a way of helping them to feel that they're capable of making changes. So this sort of feeds back to the beginning where we talked about the belief in the change. You could just, it, only if it feels genuine, only if it, it you know, doesn't feel forced, but you could say, you know, well, I noticed that when you talked about this thing, how strong you were because of all these things that you've been through, you've managed to get through them. And I think it's incredible the strength that you've shown or something along those lines, if you feel it's appropriate, if you feel as though it can be genuine, uh, and it's uh, it's heartfelt. Um, it's another way to actually help them think, well, yeah, you know, I did get through that thing. And I, I, I do believe that I can actually, you know, give this a go. And, you know, there's no harm in trying or whatever it is that, that, that they might think. So it's really motivating, really reinforcing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then the last part of Blend It is arguably the easier part. And that's simply information and timed. So... You ask them, rather than just bombarding them with information leaflets, <laughs> you ask them, would it be helpful for you to have some written materials to help you make a start? Would you find that something of interest? They say yes. If after all of this preliminary work, they say no, then you leave it because they're not interested at this time and that's okay remember we talked about the ego we have to let go of the outcome <laughs> and we've planted the seed I mean I don't think any yes. conversation is a wasted conversation well exactly that's the beauty of it and you know I say this myself it's very true every seed needs a lot for it to, to bloom into a plant you know it needs to be nurtured it needs to have the right amount of water the right amount of nutritious soil the right amount of sunshine so you may have you know, planted them in the soil, but they haven't yet had the sunshine or the rain to to kind of make that bloom into something more significant. But that's okay because it could happen another day. Yeah, and then and then timing. It really helps to give them a specific time frame, or at least ask them if they could think of their own specific time frame that they could stick to, because change talk can go by the wayside if it's not specific. We know this from whenever we've had work appraisals or any kind of feedback in terms of any profession really they'll often ask well what's your time frame for that you know when are we going to have that done by so it's nice to give them that uh, accountability buddy that they may have previously been lacking or even if you don't get to see them again the beauty of of, of these little nuggets of uh, inspiration is that it doesn't even have to be you you know I don't I don't want to discourage a locum or somebody that, that knows that they may not see that patient again it's a way for them to actually be accountable in their own mind as well to say oh well it, you know it's a bit like with smoking cessation advice it's helpful to have a date and a pl and a plan and ideally if you can see them again that's even more powerful isn't it that's that's even more reinforcing yeah that is brilliant Gemma I think that is so useful and I think so relevant to, to our day-to-day -day work I was going to ask you know if a healthcare professional wants to get started on advocating for a plant-based diet or having those conversations with with patients where to start but there you go you've just summarized it all blend it <laughs> is where to start I think <laughs> yeah exactly and you, know, you you start with a belief that they can change and with listening to to what's important to them that's 
that is the absolute foundation of it. Have you had any challenges with your fellow healthcare professionals at all? I think most of the challenges I've faced have been online, to be honest. It's a bit of a wild west out there. Uh, Overall, no, I haven't faced any professional challenges, which has been a blessing. Of course, there are challenges when it comes to changing the lives of patients because there is so much that we don't control and there's so much that they don't control. You know, there's a lot in the way that we function as a society which works against our patients. They will not necessarily have the mental bandwidth to even begin to think about making changes because they are barely able to function uh, in terms of earning enough money to put food on the table for their growing children. And so, you know, there's there's a huge amount when it comes to things like loneliness, uh, disconnection, addiction, and poor finances. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot that can get in the way. And those things are not always insurmountable, but they are some of the main determinants of health that we cannot change. So I think that's something that we have to recognise. So I wanted to ask you in the context of challenges about men, because I find them quite a specific group. We know just from who listens to this podcast that most of our listeners are going to be women. And when I raise speaking about plant-based diet with men, I, I have some interesting responses. One man I suggested he boosted his calories and his protein, you know, try, he liked hummus. So I said, why don't you have that before you, you know, before you have a meal or as a snack? Um, and he said, you have to speak to my wife. Another man that I tried to speak to about a plant-based diet. I wasn't using blend it though. So I, I don't know how it would go having listened properly to this. Um, another man that I spoke to, I said, um, you know, his diabetes was out of control. And I, and I said, oh, you know, I can talk to you about ways that, you know, we might change that through lifestyle if you don't want more medication. And he just said to me, I know all of that. I just want to know the prognosis. So he wanted to immediately go on to something very scientific about what happened to his feet, you know, and how that happened. But he wasn't interested in the other stuff. So do you have any ideas about how to tackle lifestyle change in men when it comes to diet? Men will have different challenges to women in life. And I don't like to generalize, but I completely understand where you're coming from. And the kind of men that I see in clinic will vary greatly. So I will see people of all ages, all backgrounds, and all ethnicities. And what I've noticed is that with a lot of men, they are either lonely and not necessarily open to talking about how they feel, or they will put their health onto their significant other and say that they're in charge of of everything <laughs> sometimes I mean, this is not every man of course but it's it's patterns that you start to pick up on and some of the ways in which I've been successful in terms of making lifestyle changes applicable to the men that I see will be still the listening piece because many men will not have necessarily felt listened to heard or understood and So just repeating back and looking at them and giving them eye contact is actually enough to garner their respect that they might listen to you in some scenarios. Sometimes it's a very specific thing. So, for example, I had one patient who had a very high blood pressure and all he wanted was to be able to get back to driving a HGV. And so for him, it was quite straightforward because he wanted to try anything he could to get his driving license back. 
So that was a very specific motivation. Some men, if they say, well, you just have to speak to my wife. Um, in the past, <laughs> I've had a consultation with the wife present. So if she's the one that does all the cooking, I can explain some of the, um, if they're open to it, I can explain some of the mechanisms and why it's important and things that they could try and recipe books that they could use. And they're both on board then. And that's great. It doesn't always happen. But all we can do is let go of the outcome and plant a seed, right? Um, so there will be times that it's not applicable or successful and that's okay. But um, I have found that it's surprisingly effective just to listen and see where they're coming from and what's important to them. And, you know, we know because of films like The Game Changers on Netflix, what a resistant audience the male audience is when it comes to plant-based nutrition anyway. They had an entire film dedicated to attempting to persuade men that actually meat wasn't manly. That That is literally the entire premise of the film. So... They clearly knew that there was an image problem when it came to plant-based nutrition, having decided to create a film, really trying to sort of uh, bring that point home to men. So, you know, there is work to be done and it's another barrier. So, you know, the barriers for one man won't be the same as the barriers for another. And certainly the motivations for one man won't be the same as the motivations for another. Uh, you may have somebody that is really fit and they just want to improve their 5K running time and they happen to come in for some other reason. Or you may have somebody that is really struggling, like some of your patients with a chronic disease that they don't feel they're able to change. Uh, and all you can do is, is, is plant the seed and hope for the best. And not everybody is going to necessarily listen in that first or second or third or fourth consultation. Yeah, this is true. I think it's something that we're going to come back to really thinking about what are the triggers for that motivation. I think the sports one is really good, but yeah. it's a very specific group, isn't it? Our, it's a specific. Our, our husbands. It's a, yes, it's a, it's a specific group and many of that specific group won't be coming into the doctor's surgery. So I think that's another potential <laughs> confounder. Although I don't know if you've read it, but there's a great book by TJ Waterfall, who's an elite vegan sports nutritionist called The Plant Power Plan. And uh, it's a wonderful way for men who are into ca casual athleticism, if there is such a thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, to to sort of improve their gains and so on and get some good tips. Oh, so, yeah. I'll check that one out. So another challenge on a, on a different note, not with individuals, but for those of us who are already sold on a plant-based diet, I think we've got a lot of frustration about how slowly this is embedding in the NHS, particularly where we've had we've seen drugs like Azempic and Wigobi coming out. And there's been a lot of excitement about that and a lot of talk about how we can make these drugs more available. And yet at the same time, sometimes I hear other people in the NHS say, I think going plant-based is a bit extreme. It's an extreme way of tackling our health. What do you say to people to have a, a not difficult conversation about that, but one where you're you're literally sort of trying to be the coach. Um, so when we talk about dietary change, some people prefer to switch everything up and go all in and jump 100%, and that works well for them, and that and, and that will see quite fast responses. Other people are more of a slow burn, and it takes time, and they have to change things step by step. I think most people could agree that when when half of what we eat is processed foods in the majority of the population, uh, there is a lot of room for improvement in the average Western diet. And so 
it would actually be seen to be extreme to eat a more whole foods diet, whatever that included, whether that was containing meat and dairy or not. There's a huge shift that needs to happen when you even when we look at our very well thought out eat well plate that was you know the UK dietary guidelines put together in 2016 and that plant-based health professionals UK have created a plant-based version of with very similar you know, macronutrient profiles that's not what most people's diet looks like so I think if you have colleagues saying isn't it a bit extreme you could answer well sadly yes if we look at you know the fact that half of what we eat or more than half is, is ultra processed foods and only seven percent of what we eat is fruit and vegetables we've got you know, a long way to go to improve the plates of our patients. Uh, and it might seem extreme, but um, it's it's what we need to do. And it's what our dietary guidelines tell us as well. So I think you could probably agree with them that yes, perhaps it does feel extreme, but um, that it's in line with the dietary guidelines. And so that's what we want to aim for. And you're asking about things like uh, Wigovi and the enthusiasm for Wigovi. It's only available at the moment in weight loss clinics and it's only licensed on the NHS for use for two years. So you do have to wonder, well, what's going to happen after two years? You know, are they going to stop it and then regain the weight? It's it's probable that that could happen. What's wonderful about a plant-based diet is that it can help with satiety. It really does. You know, eating all those fiber-rich foods will fill up your stomach. It increases your satiety hormones like GLP-1, which is what these um, medications are designed to target, um, as well as you know, peptide YY and amylin. You know, this is wonderful that a fiber-rich, plant-rich diet has a similar mechanism in a way as these injections that people are getting so excited about. But I think you know, there are so many ways in which it's actually really challenging for people to lose weight. And there are so many mechanisms and we make so many unconscious food choices every day. The guidance is that they have to make lifestyle changes too. And so you know, being able to make those lifestyle changes and use the injections if they are clinically appropriate is a wonderful thing. Um, sadly, it's not available um, everywhere. And sadly, it may well end up being used for the wrong purposes. But I am enthusiastic about the power of both. Okay, I think um, one place where we won't find you being enthusiastic about it, though, is your book, The Plant Power Doctor. That is something we're more than happy to recommend to our patients and our colleagues because it's got all the science and the, you know, the evidence about the diet in one place. So it's, it, it's a really good go-to book for us. Yeah, we love it. I recommend it. I'm so happy. I'm so happy to hear you say that. This it was it was such a passion of mine to create a book that would be relatable for healthcare professionals and for patients, and how to get that balance right. It was a it was a lot of work to think. Well, how do I word it so that it makes sense for healthcare professionals and that it's easy to understand for patients? <laughs> it exactly does exactly that, Gemma. It's brilliant, and I recommend it to patients all the time because, as Claire said, it has the science in there, but it's in a really easy digestible way for people to understand oh good yeah so there are recipes in there and so we really want to know are you going to be using one of your recipes tonight what are you having for dinner (laughs) well actually I have an amazing have you ever heard of the dish boboti have you ever have you ever heard of it boboti no no so it's a South African dish and it's traditionally made 
uh, with meat. And um, I actually recently got a copy of the new book by Bosch, um, which is called Meat. And I was fascinated by this book. Now, I haven't tried to make any of their homemade meats. Um, I've not quite managed to get the mental headspace for that yet. But (laughs) I did make the baboti because my grandmother used to live in South Africa. And uh, she was a doctor there, actually. She was a, a GP in South Africa. She had all sorts of stories about her clinics there. But one of the things she used to make me as a child uh, was baboti. She's oh. Scot- uh, and she's Scottish, so she would also make me rock cakes. And, <laughs> and so I have this, you know, many of us will have dishes that we remember that maybe grandparents or parents made for us when we were children. And I love the idea of creating and or recreating those kinds of beautiful memories by using plant-rich, healthy foods. And so in my book, I've got things like mac and cheese and spaghetti and you know mash and shepherd's pie and things like that, because I want it to be something that people think of as hearty and welcoming and delicious. So although, no, it's not a recipe from my book tonight, it is certainly one that has that nostalgia factor. And it's much healthier than the uh, original meat version. Mm. Lovely. And what, what are you making it with? Is it uh, a tofu or what do you replace the meat with? Um, in so, detail? Yeah. So hang on. Well, <laughs> hang on. Let me, let, me get the, let me get the recipe book. Hold on a second. Okay. So the topping, I've already got the silken tofu for the topping. It's, mm. it's basically, it's kind of like a lasagna and it's kind of like a moussaka. So it usually would use curried mince and lentils. So what I'm using, so for the topping because that's usually something that's got more of an egg layer. Yeah. Um, it's going to be silken tofu and nutritional yeast and some t- ground turmeric. And then the base, essentially, um, I've, I've already got some of the plant-based mints, but it's also um, a tin of green lentils. Nice. So it's like a mixture. Packing uh, in. And loads of spices, turmeric, ginger, cinnamon, coriander, um, garlic and onion, all of that kind of stuff. But mm. it really does have this wonderful sort of sweetness with the cinnamon. And then it's served with a um, kind of a fragrant rice with raisins uh, tr- traditionally. So it's it, the kids love it because it's got that slight sweetness to it, you see. And that so, yeah. sounds amazing, Gemma. That sounds brutal. Yes. Yes. Well, let me. Sh- I'll show you how it looks. So this everybody's going to want to get this recipe now. <laughs> well, no, they can't Ooh. see it. They can't see it. But anyway, <laughs> no. But if you send us a photo, we can put it on our Instagram account. Yeah. How's that? Oh, <laughs> right. I'm promoting your promoting actual a, dish. I was going to say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it doesn't look so good now because it's uh, some of it seconds. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's in a sort of a bowl. I should have taken a photo of it when I made it. I always anyway. have that problem. I'm I'm such an impatient eater that I've always started my food when someone gets the camera out. And yeah, you know, yeah. Oh dear. But what are you having, Daisy? We'll just uh, get another recipe in for dinner tonight. I'm actually. It's funny you should say Bosch, Gemma, because um, I love the Bosch recipes, and I'm doing a new one tonight. It's one I haven't tried before. It's uh, it's actually online, so they've got so many free recipes online. I can't believe it. Um, it's a brilliant resource out there. So it's a, a roasted garlic. Oh gosh, what do they call it now? It's a roasted garlic. You, are you going to need a moment to get to get the website? <laughs> I I needed a moment to get the book. Now you need a moment to get the website. But basically, we just love Bosch. For, for the sake of the editing, it's a roasted garlic pasta dish. And so what they've done, because I've I've read the recipe, I'm, I've got all my ingredients together. I'm going to go and make it, it in a minute. Um, you roast the cauliflower, a whole cauliflower. I mean, you can obviously cut it up and spice it up. 
and you roast a whole uh, bulb of garlic. And then once that's all done, you can put that in your blender. So obviously squeeze out the, the garlic out of the bulb when it's roasted with the cauliflower, with nutritional yeast and a bit of um, non-dairy milk. I think I'm going to use oat milk and that's infused with beautiful herbs and, and um, bay leaves and things like that. And that makes a delicious pasta sauce. So I'm going to make that and serve it with some smoked tofu. It's like an Alfredo sauce, isn't it? An Alfredo sauce. That's the word I was looking for. I've got something very similar to that in my next book, actually. Uh, I've got an Alfredo type recipe in my book called Get Well, Stay Well. And um, I'm very excited about it because it's essentially combining the power of plant-based nutrition with the power of the other pillars of lifestyle in a way that is relatable, in a way that brings in principles such as gratitude and love into our lives with lots of practical tools as well. Um, Certain uh, things like forgiveness letters and uh, the tapping techniques. And there's a few sort of different exercises in there that are very practical that will help people create their own personal plan of health moving forwards. So I'm very excited about it. Wow, Gemma, that sounds brilliant. I can't wait to get my hands on this. Oh, <laughs> book. I, I hope you love it. I, I, yeah, it's, it's my, I've got a lot of my heart in the book. You know, with the, with the Plant Power Doctor, I wrote it because I was so desperate for everybody to have the, the tools in their hands that they needed for, for nutrition. And this one is the culmination of all of the other tools that I think we need that are not necessarily all about nutrition. So there are recipes in it, but it's about the meaning of life. You know, it's about finding purpose and joy in who we are and how we move in the world and what that could look like. And so, yeah, it's it's more of a complete uh, way of looking at, at the human experience, I'd say. Sounds brilliant. And I loved your first book, so I'm sure I'm going to love your second book. Oh, I hope um, so. Thank you. It comes out on the 21st of December, so pre-orders now. Yeah. Okay, Christmas list sorted. Claire, what are you having for dinner tonight? Well, I have obviously watched a lot of Instagram clips this week, as ever, and um, I'm making one which is like the the Romanesco chippy dish that's been doing the rounds. You roast a couple of red peppers, roast some cloves of garlic and red onion. And then you're going to blend all of that together with some oh ground almonds. Add some paprika, sweet paprika, quite a lot of it. And that's your sauce. And then you just put in some cooked chickpeas. Um, I tend to cook my own and pop them in the freezer, just like Delia, if you remember that clip. And, uh, and that's it. It's just a beautiful sort of smoky the way that almonds make something really creamy. So it's almost like a sort of sort of Spanish cormory type thing. Very nice. So but it's doing... really, really quick. So I recommend it. That sounds amazing. Oh, they, yeah. both, they both sound so good. But do you know what I'm serving it with? And this is one um, for Rahimi Vijaykal, who spoke to us about groats, oat groats. I did a massive order of just the, the pure oat groats, not the steel cut ones in their whole form. Okay. And I cook those, I pop those in the rice cooker instead of rice. And it is just, it's just a beautiful nutty rice, wow. basically. You might be fooled. It's really lovely. That interesting. Good. Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, you're both making me hungry now. It's nowhere near dinner yet. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to have some hummus, which is, of course, what I recommend to my patients that get hungry between meals. Goes down very well, that recommendation. <laughs> oh, it will now. It will now, Claire. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> well, look, Gemma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope the listeners have taken a lot of your recommendations on board and that they'll use uh, Blender in their next consultation. Oh, yes, I hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date evidence-based information about the benefits of a plant-based diet and we'll add all the links for further reading in the show notes. Please remember that everything discussed on here does not constitute individual medical advice, so please consult your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns. In the meantime, please subscribe to the In A Nutshell podcast on your usual streaming service and download our future podcast for free. And since food can be the best medicine, don't forget to share us with all your colleagues, friends and family. Until next time.